Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Well, I'm glad to be back doing this. I'm back in the barn. I'm back with you. I hope that the audio quality is a little bit better than it was uh, last episode. I was doing it on my phone, but uh, as always, struggling to get to grips with uh, exactly the details of things. And halfway through there, some setting went awry and suddenly it sounded like I was in a tin can. So a little bit more organized this week. I've even got a timer. Yes, so I know how long the tangents last. So first things first, I'm gonna pour myself a little uh, coffee. Okay, well this week I want to finish up the story of uh, me sailing from uh, New Zealand up to Uruguay. I left you last time at Cape Horn. I think that was episode nine, if I remember correctly. Um, racing from New Zealand, uh, tore my mainsail, had to put it back together again, 30 odd hours of stitching in the Southern Ocean, and then got the sail back up and started heading south and east to the Horn and started trying to catch up this 500 mile uh, distance that I was behind the, the next person ahead of me. So where did I got to? I got to Cape Horn. I had rounded Cape Horn. I'd taken that turn to the left and started heading up into the Atlantic. And you know, it's, it's a feeling that I'm sure you can imagine. Um, imagine what it feels like to get close to land anyway after a big passage from new zealand to cape horn when you get to cape horn suddenly you know it is a piece of land it's the the feared waters of cape horn and all that but it is a piece of land and that does mean that some little animal part of you is happy with the fact that you know there's rocks and trees and and stuff you can see and but clearly it's not a very great place to be so um the turn left uh was making me feel better about going up into the Atlantic and close to the land and all that kind of stuff and now a essentially coastal passage from the point of view of a you know around the world yacht race it was still a couple of hundred miles offshore but it kind of feels coastal after being in the middle of the Pacific Ocean but the the thing for me was that yeah Cape Horn still had something else to give I had run into the horn as fast as I possibly could. I'd sprinted in there ahead of that storm and managed to get there just before I got squashed by it. But the reprieve was only for about six hours. And as I uh, went to sleep turning and, and starting to drive up to the northeast as I rounded the horn, the wind started to build and build and build. And within a very short period of time, I was going upwind in 40 knots. Now, the good thing was that I was relatively close to the coast. So although on the west side of the Horn, the waves would have been going from, well, basically from the east side of the Horn all the way across the Atlantic and underneath Cape Good Hope, and then all the way across the Indian and under Australia and under New Zealand, and then all the way across Pacific, there will have been wave energies that literally will have left the east coast of South America, circled the planet, and then were smashing back up against the west coast with enormous force. But meanwhile, just maybe 100 miles to the east on the other side of the coast, the fetch, the open water that uh, gave the wind time and distance to build uh, waves, the fetch was actually very short. So although I had waves, uh, they weren't that huge. But what they were, which is always a headache for any kind of sailor, is it was new swell. The wind is blowing, just like me blowing across this cup of coffee, but I make little waves, but in that millisecond as I start to get going and there's no kind of cadence and no rhythm and no regularity to the little ripples that I'm creating, it's a completely disturbed 
turbulent interface between the, the breath that I'm creating and the surface of the water. And the same on the ocean, when that new breeze comes in and it starts to pick up the waves, there's no pattern to anything, there's no regularity to anything. And so new swell is a nasty thing. And it's a very nasty thing if you're in an open 60, which is basically like a windsurfing board. It's flat, flat, flat at the front and at the back. And it is designed for one job, which is going downwind or certainly across the wind as fast as it possibly can. If you're gonna compromise the open 60, the first stepping off point would be the Volvo 60, which has a lot more rocker to the bottom of the boat, a lot more curve from the, the bow knuckle where the bow meets the water and becomes the underwater sections of the hull, that turning point we call the knuckle. From the knuckle to the keel and then back up to the transom is a lot more curved and that gives the ability for the boat to go over the waves and pitch up and pitch down with a little bit more smoothness. It has a lot more camber to the bottom of the hull, a lot more radius, certainly in the underwater sections of the bow. So as you come off a wave and then slice into the next one, there is a bit of an element of dispersing the water rather than just slamming into it. And they uh, both would have a bit more of a pinched stern as the uh, Volvo 60s do compared to the open 60s. So that as it's tipped on its side and it's sailing along, the bow, which is obviously as the wave comes towards the boat and the boat comes towards the wave, if you're a seagull sitting on the uh, water watching this boat coming towards you, there's an angled surface which represents the angle between the bow and the widest point of the boat. But as the boat passes, when you've got a pinch stern, you then have the fact that the uh, waves can uh, come out of compression underneath the boat and can uh, distribute and, and kind of continue on their way um, as the boat boat stern lifts up and away from the surface of the water. That's why a boat which is a nice compromise of upwind and downwind obviously is pinched at the bow but then is somewhat pinched at the stern. The, the final um, say on that being a Colin Archer double-ended uh, hull configuration where the front and the back almost look the same. But if you were going to compromise a, an open 60, your first stepping off point would be a Volvo 60, which is what Challenger is. Um, and then you would be on to, uh, you know, boats which have got a much more reasonable, normal kind of traditional hull shape, getting all the way in the end to something which is a very traditional shaped boat, which might have a very deep uh, four foot, if not a full keel running from the bottom of the keel right up to the bow, an unbroken line of timber or metal or fiberglass, whatever it is, creating a, a, a semi-knife-like edge that can cut. Oh, listen to that wind blowing against this barn. Oh, it's, it's pretty cold in here and you can tell why. It's not, uh, winter is not finished with us yet, but the, the design of boats, um, an open 60 is good at one thing and that is power reaching off the wind. And for that, this flat construction is necessary. So as I turned and started to go north around the horn, I'm just pounding and pounding and pounding in this new swell with this boat, which is optimized for something completely different. So I started to head north and uh, to be absolutely honest, having, I think, emotionally weathered getting through the Southern Ocean and physically weathered getting through the Southern Ocean, uh, I, I, I slept and I slept for a, a good period of time. The wind was very strong. It was very easy for, I was snugged down pretty much as tight as I was gonna go into my um, little trinket, my little staysail and probably third reef on the main or something. There was no more reefing to be done. It wasn't due to go above 40, 45 knots. Um, 
and uh, the, the autopilot is very much able to drive by the apparent wind. So there wasn't much for me to do. In that part of the world, there is traffic, but my forward motion at this point was probably six, seven knots. I've got my radar on. I've got my guard zone in play, which is where the radar, um, basically it's, it's a power saving setting the way I run it on uh, what's called Watchman. And then I have a guard zone. So I set the radar up. So it's got the Watchman setting on which um, means that it will come on and it will scan 10 or 20 or 30 times, which only takes it, you know, 10 or 20 seconds. Um, if it detects something and that is inside the guard zone, which I discussed just now, then it will bleep and alarm will go off and it will tell you something's there. And if not, then it just goes back to sleep and it goes back to sleep for two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is. So when you're forward motion through the ocean is uh, only around five or six knots, um, I can leave it to, you know, 10 minute scans. And then I can, um, uh, if it gives me a, a ping and alarm, I know to look now, how is it giving me a ping and alarm? Cause they don't normally do that. You have something called a guard zone, which you can select in one of the settings of your radar and then draw it out in a, either in a radius around the center of the screen or in a little kind of barrier ahead or behind all the way around you, like a little kind of wall around you. And then if anything enters that box, anything enters, it then stays there and is on consistent scans, then alarm will go off. So the great way you can use this is that yeah, if you put it on Watchman and you put it on the uh, guard setting, the, the upshot of all that is that you can uh, have it essentially off, have a little bit of a snooze. If it detects something, it comes on. Now, the other thing it does uh, for me on the Open 60s is it works in conjunction with the Active Echo. And Active Echo is a radar detection system. You know, I'm, I'm on a 60-foot boat with a radar which is probably only... 15 feet, if that, 15 feet off the water, 10 foot up the mast. Um, it's got a very limited range, and I am having to trim the radar uh, uh, signal up off the waves. I've got my wave filter on, my sea filter on, which means that the lower apron of the radar is, is lifted. It's focused up and away from the sea a little bit, so it's not picking up every wave around the boat. On the Open 60, it is on a pivoting bracket, so it is at least staying pretty horizontal to the horizon. But between putting the sea filter on and the limitations of that height, my biggest issue is can I detect something? But the great thing about being down there with the shipping that's down there is obviously big ships have all got their radar on, and that's where the active echo comes in. Because it, when it picks up a, a radar signature of 3,000 gigahertz signature coming from an X-band radar, it will um, sound an alarm. So for me sleeping, what it sounds like is sleepy, sleepy, sleepy for nine minutes and 59 seconds. And then the radar will come on. And because it's transmitting uh, radar signal, the active echo will come on, which is like a beep little alarm. It's going to come on for about 20 or 30 seconds, which um, tells me A, the, the radar is transmitting. B, that the active echo is operational. And then what should happen is that the guardman, the, the, sorry, the watchman and the guard zone in combination, if they don't detect anything around me, then the radar will go back to sleep mode for another 10 seconds, at which point the signal stops from the radar and the active echo turns off. So as I'm sleeping, basically I'm aware of the fact that there's this beep, that's the active echo telling me the radar's on, then it goes silent again for another 10 minutes. And then if there is alarm, then I'm going to get beep, 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 beep from the radar and the active echo will stay on, which the two of them after a while, you know, you get used to these. I know that means that we have detected uh, a, a radar signature and that there's a ship around me. But um, 
I found that to be a very, very good way of getting some longer sleeps as a, as a short-handed and solo sailor. Um, and that is in, it's in, it's in uh, communication with and, and in conjunction with the fact that I'm looking at where I am, I'm looking at uh, you know my visibility, I'm looking at the uh, shipping lanes, I'm looking at the volume of uh, traffic likely to be in that area. Like it's not just like I go to sleep and I hope it works because obviously, you know, complete battery uh, dropout and, and power loss would end up in silence and I could sleep on forever. But this is, bear in mind that the, um, the, the watch uh, that I'm discussing, this multiphasic sleep, where you're in and out of sleep, in and out of sleep all the time, um, I'm still waking up every, probably I'd set the alarm clock there for every 99 minutes. So that's the maximum it can give me. So every hour and a half, I'm completely awake and on deck and having a look around and making sure everything's okay. We've got a forward motion of maybe eight knots. So I'm doing maximum 12 miles forwards, a lot of leeway, and I'm scanning every 10 minutes with the radar and everything, and let's trying to catch that as I'm sleeping. So I take the turn, I'm having a big sleep, and I think in total, in phases, I slept probably about six hours. Six hours in which I didn't do much apart from the most basic things I had to do. So finally, I wake up, and maybe, I don't know, by the time all that's done, maybe 100 miles or something around the corner from, uh, no, maybe not that much, 60, 70 miles, I guess, around the corner from the horn. And um, I'm sitting up on my bench and having a look around, looking out the windows, stretch, yawn, think about something to eat, and I hear slosh, slosh. Like, oh, it's a bit of a funny one. It's, what was that noise? Slosh, slosh. Huh, there's something up here. There's something Something's up, something, some, some water's somewhere. I'm, you know, I'm not unaware of the fact that water can get in the boat. So, okay, no problem. Have a look around me. No, no. Have a look into the lazarette, which is my... Uh, initially, I'll always like look in the lazarette first because the autopilots are in there and they're electrolinear. Um, if they get wet, um, they will stop working. So uh, water in the lazarette also, if you have 10 centimeters of water in the lazarette, that can be sloshing around to the point where it is on the electrolinear ramps and you have got a problem. But... Okay, no problem. Well, must be in the, must be in the in the front of the boat. <laughs> I thought to my, actually, I guess it's kind of lucky. I I thought, well, I'll go on deck and check the deck, and I'll have a look through the forward hatch and see how bad it is. So uh, it didn't open the hatch, which was between the cabin and the forward part. A good job I didn't. It was, it was quite a kind of crawl and a twist and a turn to get to there, and I was on my way out the door anyway. So. Um, I went on deck, had a look around a few things, opened the hatch to the fore part of the boat, which is like, you know, 20 foot of the boat. And uh, it's deep, <laughs> it's like really deep. <laughs> the water, there's a lot of water inside. And um, for anybody that really knows their sailing, you may have read a book by Sir Robin Knox Johnson where he chronicles going around the world on his open 60 in the Velux Five Oceans race. So this is the same boat. We're talking about the same boat. It was great power for him. It was Spartan for me. But I did not read that book. Bear in mind that this trip around the world was in 2010, 2010, 2011, this would be. Um, I had, didn't read that book until I read it in 2018. <laughs> and I, I knew it existed, the book, but I was like, no, no, you know, I don't want my experience to be influenced by somebody else's experience on the same boat. Well, had I read that book, I would have discovered that he struggled a lot with a major leak on a daggerboard casing. and. Whatever had happened, whatever he'd had fixed, whatever was the history of it, it had come loose. <laughs> and there was a lot of water. 
And it took a very long time to work out in the end where it was coming from. But my initial thing was, oh, all my sails are floating. And, you know, it's halfway up the hatch, which goes through to the main part of the boat. So um, luckily, we were sponsored by Whale that do all these wonderful uh, pumps. And uh, I, you know, I do do a lot of bailing in my life. There's, a, there's, a, there's times when you just, oh, just get a bucket and a sponge and a scoop and, and you get going. But Whale do a, a series of pumps, manual and, and electric. And uh, we'd been sponsored by ones which they, they are super low profile and they suck like right off the, the, the hull, you know, not normally where you get that like, inch left in the bottom of the hull. Whatever these things, these little suckers, they're, um, that's what they should call them. There you go. The, the new whale, little sucker. Um, it sucks real real tight up against the hull and I'd had a number of issues with water in previously on the boat so I'd fitted um, one on either side and I think that's something that gets um, missed perhaps on some sports boats particularly um, on a traditional boat you put the the pump down in the bottom of the bilge and the bilge is the lowest point of the uh, the bilge, oh, sorry, the sump above the keel is the lowest part of the bilge. The bilge has a shape which goes down to the sump. The sump is above the uh, keelson and the, the keel securing bolts and everything. It's the lowest part and that's where your bilge pump is. But on a boat which is 19, 20 foot wide, you know, it's five and a half meters wide, um, when you're beating, all the water is at the lowest point and that is not in the middle. So I'd got wise to things and I had uh, these whale pumps um, in the forepeak and in the main cabin, in the lazarette, mounted what I said uh, are like on the flanks. Uh, so I had my port flank pump in my forepeak and I was able to turn that on. And it's only a little guy, it's only a little sucker, but um, he, uh, he was able to um, bring the water level down, bring the water level down over time. And then I got in and started working out what on earth was wrong with this, um, this dagger board. And indeed, there was a crack where the dagger board casing met the hull and water was coming in there. So. Um, it was a moment of like, ooh, there's water in the boat. Little did I know that later on in the trip, I would have a much bigger moment like that, which we'll get to in the end. But um, it was a first look at the idea of like, wow, you know, firstly, you're glad that the fact that the boat has watertight bulkheads. That, that boat had one, two, three, four, four bulkheads, I think. Yeah, there's one right at the front that separates off the chokey. There's one that separates off an area forward of the forepeak. There's the one that separates off the forepeak and there's the one that separates off the lazarette. Yeah, so there's five separate sections of the boat and there's four bulkheads which have got doors in them which conceal completely. So you, firstly, you're looking down into this, you know, what is quite a large area. It's about, I'd say, 20 foot from just under the mast forward to under the tack of the, the staysail. Um, it's a big enough area, it's pretty wide, but it, some of the volume is taken up by the ballast tanks that are in there, but um, it is still a pretty big area. So you're very glad of the fact there's watertight bulkheads. And it actually did lead me along a, a process I was already on. I, I actually designed a few years ago a emergency flotation system for, for yachts, which one day hopefully we'll bring to the marketplace to save them, particularly if they're left on moorings, hurricanes, that kind of stuff, or if you're away from the boat for a long period of time, it stops the boat from completely sinking. Um, I, I wouldn't say off the bat that I'd be confident to have it like to save lives at sea, like, but then, you know, the world of offshore life-saving equipment is a massive, well, compromise, if not a bit of a fallacy sometimes, like life rafts. You read the accounts of the Sydney Hobart and the fact that life rafts are just ripped in pieces. Um, you'd consider 
just how awful life is inside a life raft. Like getting into a life raft is no kind of good thing. So it's not like it's a great option. Um, this would be an option whereby the boat would be mostly flooded, but it would still be floating, which is much better if you've left it and come back to it and it hasn't sunk, you don't have to deal with getting a boat up off the bottom. Um, and you can always, you know, most electronics should be above uh, midway up the cabin anyway because of water ingress. So um, with a little bit of sense, it, it can be a very useful thing. But this was a moment where I looked in there and thought, God, I wish I'd already built that thing because <laughs> it was, uh, it would have been great. It would have gone off inside this area of the boat and massively limited how much water was in the boat. Um, but I got going and I got on my way and I, I got something to eat and everything. And I, I started to feel pretty good. And actually, I've got some wonderful pictures that I took that next morning of me uh, drinking from a little plastic cup on which I written Cape Horn 2011. And then I held up little pictures for my mum and dad and for people that are important in my life at the time and you know, my girlfriend at the time and the, uh, uh, to, to say, hey, look, I'm here. I did this. And I think for a lot of them, it was a point of like really like, oh, God, thank God for that. He's, he's out the Southern Ocean. That's how I felt. So. Um, started going north and obviously the next kind of major thing that was ahead of me was the Falkland Islands and the Falkland Islands ended up being for me a very interesting tactical uh, moment. <clears throat> Everybody else had gone uh, outside of the Falkland Islands and um, that is by far the most normal way to go. Yeah, obviously if you're going inside a group of islands suddenly you're dealing with currents between the islands, you're dealing with navigational hazards, and you're dealing with um, the, the shadow, the wind shadow cast by the islands themselves. But uh, everybody ahead, the way that the, the line was going on the chart and the weather patterns they'd been in, bear in mind by now we're down to like the guy just ahead of me, which was Derek Hatfield, was like 80 miles ahead of me. And the guy ahead of him was uh, Gutek was maybe 120 or 130 miles ahead. Brad was still 200 miles ahead. But, you know, and I think I really, at this point, I'd lost that big, ex, big, um, uh, advantage I had coming uh, into the horn where I just had this stronger weather system behind me. I had the bit between my teeth. It was downwind work and I had the exact sails to sail that angle. This now was a case of it was a pretty f level playing field. So if I was going to make any um, uh, gains on the people ahead of me, I was going to have to do it like old school, like little, little by little. There was not going to be any of this kind of video game uh, excitement I'd experienced uh, for the last week of, of just catching people hand over fist every scheduled uh, report. Oh, note to self, don't leave the coffee in the cup while you're talking. Now, I've got my thermometer with me this time, and I can uh, report that it is three and a half degrees Celsius in here. <laughs> so yeah, very, very similar to being at Cape Horn, although the wind's outside and I don't have to go into it, but my hands are equally cold. Um, so uh, yeah, so the Falkland Islands were coming up and what I saw was I saw an opportunity to um, to take a little advantage. And you know, there's that old thing in sailing that you're never gonna get back into the leaders if you do exactly what they're doing. You have to be better at sailing. You have to take more advantages from the shifts you're given, or you have to make a different choice about how you're gonna run that leg of the race. Otherwise, you'll never catch up. So, oh, thank God, a warm cup now. Um, so what I did is, uh, I took this line. I'd have to look at a chart to remember exactly. I was thinking the other day, you know, yellow brick store uh, the routes from all the different um, boats they've tracked over the years. And I wondered if yellow brick actually still have my route from the 2011 uh, Velux race. That would be awesome. I don't think I was ever aware of that at the time, that that was even a possible thing. Maybe it wasn't. And I'm, I'm sure it's long since deleted, like 
can you imagine they're storing like every boat's position for the last 10 years or something? But, you know, stranger things have happened. I can't imagine it's a very big file. But um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where I went, but I remember this. The gap that I was going through was half a mile wide. And as it uh, came to it, I was, I was doing pretty nicely. I was doing 16 knots and I was heading towards this gap and it was before dawn. It was, uh, it was pitch black, it was before dawn. But what I do remember is that <laughs> I had to do an interview for Radio 5 Live from the BBC in the UK, a live uh, interview. It'd been, I'd done a few of them, and um, I don't think in my head I'd really realised like, how many things were all going to come together. It was only 10 minutes, but it was I was sitting at the nav station where I had to be with my little headset and my mic and everything, and I'm talking to the producer, okay, are you there yet? Yeah. And they're just finishing up the song and then they're gonna cut to you and okay, okay, okay. And all the time this is going on, I'm looking at this uh, at this chart plotter in front of me, which obviously, bear in mind, I've been way, way, way offshore for thousands of miles and I've already had that experience in Australia where I nearly drove into that uh, island. And so I'm very much concentrating on what's going on. I keep standing up and like looking out the windows, but you can't really see directly ahead because the mast is there. So you can't see under the, the jib very well. So I'm looking and looking, looking at the radar, looking at everything. And this guy's, hey, yeah, how's it going? Where are you? Oh, you know, I've got to sound really like, uh, calm and relaxed, like I've got it all together. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, well, I'm at the Falklands now and I've caught up, yeah, okay, and how is it now? Well, it's dark outside, yeah, well, you, you know, what's happening to you next? Well, I'm gonna go through this narrow gap. And as I'm watching it, we are literally like, uh, you know, half a mile, no, three quarters of a mile, half a mile off. He's like, okay, well, uh, you know, we've got a request that you've uh, put in for us. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna be playing this song. It's from the Eurythmics, that's great. And well, we'll speak to you later on. I said, yeah, that's great. I've got to go, I was not gonna crash. And I just dropped the headset, hoping that the producer realized and went on deck to then do the wiggle and the jiggle to get through. Now it's half a mile wide, so let's not get confused. It's not like I was trying to pass through, you know, the locks to the Panama Canal here, but it was very narrow. And the, the depth sounding, whilst the land was half mile wide, the depth sounding I had to pass through was only like quarter of a mile wide. And the Pacific Ocean is two and a half thousand miles wide. So I was very aware of the fact that I had to get through this little narrow gap and shoo, down we went, went through it, no problem at all. Popped out the other side, like, oh, that's it. Sun came up like, okay, great, great, you know. And, uh, and I had taken a little bit of advantage from it. And uh, I do uh, thank Alan Nabauer, who was uh, one of the guys from, I think he was, the, uh, he was the assistant race director for that race, but he was much closer to our project than that. He was a great friend to what was going on. And um, he, uh, he, at the time he was, um, obviously not allowed to get outside influence, but he was very concerned about this, this issue I'd had in the Southern Ocean. They were very concerned about me on the, uh, the storm as I was approaching Cape Horn. They were very concerned when I reported this water in the bow. So we've been in an ingoing uh, conversation and I, I've been telling my plan is to go through this cut. So he, uh, he came back and wished me well with it and, uh, and said that it would be, you know, it'd be a good idea if it went well. So uh, it was great to have his support on board. And of course, I should mention all through this that um, I had uh, a fantastic supporter. Actually, I haven't mentioned up to now, and that was Donna Atkinson. Donna Atkinson was uh, a crew member when I did the Clipper Around the World race, and um, she was an absolute stalwart of that uh, of, of the Clipper campaign going around the world. She did a lot of the resupplying, a lot of the admin. She, you know, I'm, I'm very good at one thing, and I'm not quite worked out what it is yet, but I'll tell you as soon as I find out myself, but it's definitely not admin. And it's definitely not. Um, <laughs> it's definitely not dealing with uh, 
confused and confusing logistics unless it's an emergency situation. If I'm good at anything, it's uh, pulling the irons out the fire in time that there's no kind of disaster. It's not the things that, that Donna's good at. And she got me through, um, along with help from other people, she got me through getting the boat on the water and getting the start line. And I usually say to her, just tell me where to stand and what to wear and I will do the rest. You know, are we, are we doing something in front of a school? Are we doing something in front of uh, managing directors? Is this, uh, you just tell me what I need to turn up wearing and when I need to be there and where I've got to stand and I'll do the rest. But she made that happen. And um, she also was my uh, shoulder to cry on when things were hard. Uh, she was um, <clears throat> always there to give me information and, and, and kind of bustle me along and pick up my spirits when they were low. And um, she would do things like send me the pe I couldn't send movies backwards and forwards, stuff like that. I'm on a broadband connection on a yacht at sea and it's 2011, but she would send me the PDFs of the scripts and I would read them because I'm, like, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And uh, I'd be reading the scripts and comparing what the differences were between the original and the film in my head and just things like that. And her support, and I remember particularly around this time coming up from the horn, um, she was absolutely fantastic. And I, I th it was, it was marvelous to have her and her energy and her dedication to what was going on. And, uh, you know, the funny thing was that after that all finished up, we've, we've hardly communicated, uh, you know, in years since. Uh, I've hardly communicated with any of my Clipper crew, really. I think I, I bounced off the back of Clipper so fast and so hard into the round the world thing that there was no opportunity to create a connection and to create a, a relationship and an ongoing friendship beyond the race. And I just kind of disappeared out of their lives. They disappeared out of mine. And uh, I'm always sad about that because there were some incredible people in that uh, Clipper crew. And, um, you know, I was learning how to be a captain. I made a lot of mistakes. I, I lent on them very heavily under the guise of, uh, well, you know, it's your race, you're here. Um, and I, I'm always, very proud of what they accomplished with or without me. I'm very proud of um, the sailors they become uh, became. Many of them went on to do incredible things. But Donna came from that world and came into the uh, the Velux world for me. And uh, it, it's an un. When you hear me talking about these things, I did, and I say, you know, we we fixed the mainsail and we got along, or we got the boat on the water. That we is not um, like the royal we. It is the we of. You know, there was Aston who was fixing all of the, doing everything, fixing the boat in all sorts of ways. There was Donna who was fixing me and keeping me on the straight and narrow. There was Alan Nabauer and there was all sorts of people around it. Um, people that were, you know, personal and close to me, just offering help and offering support and offering, um, going and sailing solo, solo around the world or going solo up a mountain or across a desert or doing a marathon. There's... It'd be very sad if you were totally on your own doing it. it, it you know, it, it is a, a situation where it's we rather than I, and it is a situation where you need to, I think, always recognise that. So, yeah, the, there was a, there was a there were more than one person on that boat in spirit, if not physically, and Donna was definitely one of them. And I remember that day particularly. I can't remember exactly what the situation was, but it was the first time where I had a bit of a look at the fact that things might turn out as rosy as she had promised me they would. And uh, I'm forever grateful and thank you, Donna, that you kept me going through those times. So um, I pop out the back of the, uh, the, the Falkland Islands and suddenly the people ahead of me are actually like quite close, like really quite close. Oh my God, it goes cold so fast, it's crazy. Although it wasn't particularly warm when I got here. 
So the situation ahead of me was one which you'd seen playing out quite a few times in this race. Brad Van Loo in his boat, Le Penguin, was uh, was way ahead. And um, you know, Brad had this race, I, I believe Brad had this race won before he ever went to the start line. And that is the best piece of advice I have ever heard in yacht racing. But it, it basically covers business, um, anything, right? It, it's, it's Sun Tzu all over. It's, uh, it's a Chinese general from, was it a thousand years ago or something? His wisdom being passed down works. You know, you've got to beat the opposing army before you ever step foot on the battlefield. And he had prepped that boat in such a way, the sail set that he had, the preparatures that he had, um, the and the experience that he'd already won a solo around the world race previously, like, uh, you know, in his class, he, he was streets ahead. Mm. And um, he, um, he was way ahead again. And uh, if I ever get on the water in a, in a way which is as organized as he was, I'd be a very, very lucky person. And um, it, it is still for me now, as I move towards doing this West Around the World uh, trip, which I'll talk about that at the end of this podcast, actually. Let's not get into it too much now. I'd like to touch on that. That's a big thing that's coming up for me. When I go and do this West Around the World record attempt at the end of this year, um, my concept will be that if I can be as organized as Brad Van Loo was for that race, and maybe that gets to the point of actually asking Brad to come and be involved and make sure I'm that organized. If I can have that level of preparation, it sets me up for success long before I ever, you know, don my boots and go down to the boat and, uh, and, and, and set off on the thing. So he was ahead. And then behind him was a, a close pitch battle between Gutek, um, Zbigniew Gutanowski. I'm sure I just, I've just murdered his name, but if I say it fast, then uh, Zbigniew Gutanowski. If I say it fast, you won't notice so much, but we all knew him as Gutek. And um, he had done the, uh, the race, which was a multi-hole race around the world in 2000. He'd had a lot of success on keelboats, dinghies, all this kind of stuff. And he had um, fantastic support in the uh, form of uh, Marjek who is uh, the guy actually we just worked with recently down at the Caribbean 600, and then he did the Heineken regatta um, with the Volvo 65. So Magic's gone on to incredible things as well. But uh, the two of them together were a potent force, both off the water, prepping the boat, and on the water, making that much older boat go very, very fast. And behind them was Derek Hatfield, who was uh, at that point on his third Third trip around the world, he'd come third in his division in an open 40 in 2000, I believe. He then got a fantastic campaign together to do the 2008 Vendee Globe, but unfortunately had suffered damage to his mast in the Southern Ocean and had to come off the racetrack. But he had incredible experience and tenacity and, um, you know, unfortunately Derek has passed away now. And uh, whilst he and I were not working together for the last year of his life, having had a business together, um, he is much missed. And uh, if you can say nothing else, he was a, a hell of a character hell of a life and um yeah many many days i i, I miss uh the, the time that we had together as friends uh, uh challenging ourselves out on the water but so ahead of me got this interesting pack now i gotta say i'll i will reveal to you how that all sounds very kind of um uh, grand on my behalf of how awesome my uh, fellow competitors were and we had certainly become a bit of a family by then but i gotta tell you when i set off to do the the velux race i was telling people well there's just this old guy, a Polish guy, and some fat American. That was my thing I was putting out there. Like, this is like, how naive and stupid can you be? And I was 
31 or something. Uh, so I haven't got any excuses, but that was, yeah, that was where I thought I was. You know, I'd just come off the back of coming seventh in the Clipper race, like, well, the sky's the limit now, right? Yeah, right. So then I went to learn how to be a sailor. So by this point, having come through the Southern Ocean, being trounced on every occasion in every conceivable way by these awesome sailors, I was very respectful of who was ahead of me and the competency of their campaigns. But however you want to put it, they were getting very close. So <laughs> uh, it was time to do what I could. So I started uh, pushing the boat harder and harder again, now in a new mode going upwind. Um, I'd been very uh, much educated by the fact that coming out of Cape Town, I did not have a code zero and my boat required one to go upwind at the correct speed. The code zero, if you don't know, we can have a quick uh, chit chat about that now. Um, the code zero came onto the water first in the 1997 um, Whitbread race. It was on EF language and it was Grant Dalton's boat. And I think Grant Dalton and his crew are pretty much credited with taking ocean racing and making it into the highly professional, highly uh, specialized um, pursuit that it is these days. I would argue these days it's almost getting a little bit too like that, but um, they made it that they were worrying about inches and minutes and you know every trim uh, whereby previously I think there'd been a little bit more of a lackadaisical kind of uh, style about it. Um, sail technology was developing, things were coming along. Um, you have to understand with sails and sail technology, I have a book here somewhere called Looking at Sails, which is, I gotta say, probably one of the worst titles for a book ever, and yet the book itself is awesome. I'll put the, uh, the full title and the author in the uh, link below this. Um, but in that book, it's the first time in, you know, I did a lot of reading about sailing, a lot, a lot of reading. And they're always talking about, oh, it's a Venturi effect and the the, uh, the air on one side of the sail is going at a different speed to the other side. And they're just taking Bernoulli's law of lift on an airplane and then trying to apply it to sails. And by 97, we'd started to realize that basically we don't know how sails work. That's, that's what is, this is what I find amazing about sailing is that you're at 1997, which is at least 1,997 years since people have been out on the water. But very clearly, you know, <laughs> they'd been on the water long before that. Probably five or six or more thousand years of people being out on the water. I was just doing this, um, I was just doing this uh, seamanship online training video for Patreon uh, yesterday, or a couple of days ago, and I had to look up a detail. You know that the oldest piece of rope uh, that's ever been found was carbon dated to 40,000 years ago. 40,000 years ago. Now that is not to say that people were sailing 40,000 years ago, <laughs> clearly, but you know, they had the kit. Like if you could dig out a log and you've got something that you can weave into, you know, some palm fronds into some kind of sail, and you've got a little bit of line for a bit of rigging, you can go. So it, I find it incredible that by 1997, we just started to understand. And if you remember back, that's kind of like when, you know, you started getting those little things that stick up on the end of the wings on airplanes, those non-planar winglets that, uh, that help with the end wash off the end of airplane wings and suddenly, oh yeah, they're all much more efficient. It's because the ability of computers to properly map aerodynamic and hydrodynamic flows started to improve to the point where we're actually able to understand what makes a boat go forward. So it is in a very interesting time in sail uh, design and um, we should discuss that at some other point. Like, 
I chat about all sorts of stuff during this and I listen to it one or two more times it goes through editing and then so if you want to hear about the development of sales and the way that modern square top sales are like Chinese junk rigs and you want to hear about planar winglets versus non-planar winglets and all this kind of stuff somebody put it in the comments or write to me and tell me yes I'd like to hear about sale design through the ages okay because it's very interesting and it's another idea of how we go around in big circles in sailing which bring us back to exactly basically where we started not too many spoilers but you know there's not much difference between a big gaff rig sail and a modern square top main is there but anyway so 1997 grant dalton and the boys hang on a bit of a coffee here you can tell it's kicking in right it kicks in about half an hour through um Grant Dalton and the boys, um, they want to create a solution for going upwind. I have here with me in this room somewhere uh, the uh, sail changeover charts and the VPP, the velocity prediction program output, the, the hand-drawn polars for Yamaha, the boat which we owned out in um, out in California now. It's uh, the original, the information, and they went to sea in the 93 Whitbread race with 17 sails on board. 17 sails. They've got a code one, code two, code three, code four, code five, code six, code seven, code eight, all different sorts of downwind sails. They have a light wind uh, wind seeker, which is basically like a mylar jib. They've then got their uh, heavy number one, their light number one, their number two, their number three, and their number four, the storm jib, the mainsail, and a trisail. So <clears throat> I hope that comes to 17, but <laughs> I've missed one if not. Maybe they've got a jib top in there as well. <clears throat> but however way you put it, they were changing sails like it was going out of fashion. But by 97, the sail wardrobes had started to shrink a little bit, and sail manufacturer got to the point where one sail could do a number of different jobs and be a lot more dynamic. And it's this um, opportune moment where all of these downwind sails, which were referred to at that time as Code 1, Code 2, Code 3, which relate to... Um, a reaching or running sail, uh, heavy reaching and running sail, lighter reaching and running sail, much lighter reaching and running sails in pairs. The ones are downwind, The sorry, the odd numbers are downwind sails, the even numbers are reaching sails. So your number one uh, would be your light wind uh, downwind sail, and then your number two would be a light wind reaching sail, right up to your um, code eight, which would be your uh, light wind uh, reaching sail. Sorry, your heavy, heavy airs reaching sail. So they got to a point, though, they realized that the big hole in their armory was light airs. And, you know, it's a little easy now to look back on it and say, oh, isn't that obvious? But a code zero is a massive overlapping sail with a very flat surface area. And if you think of another craft that man has shaped, which has a similar principle, what moves very slowly through wind and needs to create lift with very little other propulsion? The answer is a glider. So what configuration and characteristics do a glider's wings have? Well, they're very long, sure, but we could say in a different way, they have a lot of surface area. So, ah, okay, so they have a lot of surface area, and that is one of the elements that the Code Zero brings to bear, is that it has this very large surface area, and then it has a lot of four-stay tension, which then means that it has a very flat surface area, which is able to start to develop a little bit of um, uh, pressure, that it acts as a barrier, essentially, to the wind. The wind has to turn, create a little bit of pressure, and then start to move across the surface of the sail. Now, on a boat which is suited to having 
a code zero, like uh, a sports boat or a boat with a very high power to weight ratio, like a Volvo 60 or at that point a Whitbread 60, um, that small amount of force that it's able to create means that the boat's able to start to move forward very, very nicely in very, very light airs. And then as the boat moves faster forward, then you've got a little bit more wind coming over the bow. The boat is creating wind. The boat wind adds to the true wind coming over the water. And suddenly you've got a sail in the code zero, which is like sorcery. It's like magic. It's, it's insane. It will literally produce wind. It will manufacture apparent wind for you. And if you know what you're doing at the helm and you can sense it and you can feel it, it is absolutely incredible. The Grant Dalton boys, at the time with the Code Zero, you know, they were accused of having an illegal sale because they actually used their brains and this, this level of understanding had been reached where they understood how sales work and this new sale had been developed. But at the time, Code 1, Code 2, Code 3, Code 4, in pairs, you're running and reaching sales in different wind conditions. This Code Zero name, came from the fact that they needed like a secret name for it that they could refer to it as so that people didn't overhear what they were doing. You know, they're in and amongst a, a, a profession and a sport and a, an industry that's very interested to hear what people are developing. So the name Code Zero came out of the fact that it was a, a flying headsail. It wasn't a Code One, Two, Three, Four. It was a new thing, this Code Zero. And that obviously has stuck around for a long time since. But um, yeah, inspiring days. If, if you want to hear more about code zeros and IRC ratings, <laughs> hint, hint, if you want to hear about how to make your IRC rating better, um, somebody write to me in the comments, else I'll forget, and we'll do one on IRC ratings and how to get them a bit better. For those who don't care what IRC rating is, uh, well, you know, <laughs> don't worry. There'll always be lots of tangents. I'm sure about talk about lots of other things. Okay, but anyway, back to where we were, which was me sailing up the coast heading towards Punta del Este. Now, I didn't have the code zero, but the good thing was that I was just able to pick an angle where I didn't kind of need it. I didn't need the zero. I have a very large um, solent on that boat, which goes right from the, the, the stem of the boat, right up to the top of the, the mast, 20 on that boat, 26 meters in the air. So with that overlapping and sheeted on bar tight, and the main, with if you've been listening to the last of these podcasts, get the batten at the lower part of the main, pull the pin so that you can pull the boom down and the sail <laughs> pulls away from the mast so I don't destroy the mainsail track for the umpteenth time. And then I had this upwind mode, and, uh, and I started hunting these guys, but I started hunting them by like really looking at the shifts, really looking at what was going. And Gutek and, and Derek started to come suddenly within like 40 miles, 30 miles, 20 miles. And then a little disaster where the, uh, the Solent started to tear all along the bottom. And uh, you know, there was no chance of like getting out the sky and doing repairs and everything like that. And I literally had probably a day, day two maybe to run, three days maybe, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I'd say not more than 72 hours. Um, so I just got heaps of duct tape, <laughs> heaps of duct tape all over the bottom of it. And I wrote on it, punter or bust, because that literally was gonna be what happened. Either I get a punter uh, or the sales busted. So I went hunting and I went hunting then and I passed Derek, which, you know, it, it's kind of like a thing that, oh, I passed Derek, but I haven't told this story properly in this detail for years. But, you know, that was a pretty momentous moment. The last time that I'd been anywhere near him would been just off of the coast of New Zealand, I guess, or I, I was in, in contact with him within 100 miles, you know, 1,000 miles east of New Zealand. But New Zealand at this point is a number of weeks ago. No, that'd be, 
how long did we take? Three weeks it would have taken to do it. This is six and a half thousand mile leg from New Zealand through the Pacific Ocean, through Point Nemo, around Cape Horn and up to Punta del Este, which is uh, in Uruguay there. So, you know, we're getting down to the last three days. I haven't seen these people. I, I passed Derek without seeing him. It was over the horizon, but it was momentous. And I had actually positioned myself nicely so I could actually come onto an even quicker line as the wind turned, which put Derek at a slight disadvantage. So I was, I was, I was gunning then, I was gunning. And uh, as we started getting closer to the coast of Punta del Este, you know, Gutek was like literally just ahead of me. Like the, um, a moment came about where suddenly up on my AIS, which can only see 20 miles, pops Operon Racing. <laughs> like, whoa, okay, so I keep watching, keep watching it. And when it gets down to within seven or eight miles, because I'm trucking, I'm trucking, um, I go on deck and I can see his boat. This is a round-the-world yacht race round below Cape Horn, and I can see the guy that's ahead of me, and the guy that's ahead of me is in second. By this point, Brad's already in. Like, we can almost discount him from the conversation because he wins so often. I'm now racing for second. So, oh, man alive. So, now I made a mistake. I made a few mistakes from here on, but I'd say the first one was is that I, I decided now I've caught him up, now I can really go for it. And it's like, if you look at that, it's like, well, the net result is you caught him up by a series of actions and then having caught him up, you change that, those actions. So, you know, surprise, surprise, something somewhere was gonna go wrong, which it did, not to give too much away, but um, the, uh, I, I, I could see him, so I trimmed to the best of my ability. That was good, it was good for speed. I, uh, I took the helm and I started hunting him down because now, you know, this is gonna be a boat on boat pass. This is just Thursday night racing down the yacht club. And this guy's not that far ahead of me, not sort of, we're doing like, you know, we're in the 12, 14, 15 knot kind of region. So when somebody's five or six miles ahead of you, um, it's gonna take you time to get there. But we've got, you know, by this point, I imagine, I don't know exactly the timings here, but we're down, I pressed Derek with, with 72 hours to go. I guess I was into Derek, uh, into Gutek by 48 hours to go. And what becomes very apparent after just a very short period of time is that I had made a mistake by changing my plan and I had to stop helming. And this is something we can touch on here now as well. Autopilots back in the day were controlled by Fluxgate compasses, very simple uh, compass uh, setup, which basically it just, reacting to the a heading sensor. And uh, could you steer faster than an autopilot? Yes, absolutely you could, no problem at all. Okay, their reactions were slow, their ability to react to waves were awful, their head, heading, their ability to keep heading was terrible. So yeah, absolutely you can drive faster than it. As technology had developed along, now you know we're 10 years back from where we are now here, but I had uh, a, a unit on board, it was an X-33, I think, from Raymarine, and it had a gyro compass, which means it's much more able to deal with waves and it's able to uh, calculate into its little uh, uh, computations the rate of turn, which means it can then work out how fast the bow of the boat's turning and put on more or less helm. So once you've got a gyro compass into it, things are getting much, much better. These days you've got like nine axis uh, accelerometers and all sorts of things. It's like uh, uh, 800 magicians packed into that little box under the counter. But you know, this was coming along, it was getting good. And um, it could definitely drive faster than I could in most situations. There are a couple of situations where um, 
you've got you know cross waves or fluky winds or working with the code zero and stuff like oftentimes you can do that better yourself but you know after half an hour after an hour i don't care who you are unless it's storm conditions and you're just holding on and dodging waves on autopilot's always better and uh this was definitely a situation where after i uh, driving for an hour or so <laughs> getting further and further wave i had to concede that I needed to let the boat get back to what the boat had been doing very, very merrily for many thousands of miles and just do its job. So I re-engaged the autopilot and then uh, sat there. I, I moved, you know, maybe checked some of the lashings on the sails. And then, you know what I did? I went on sat inside the boat because <laughs> we were beating. And it's literally, I relegated myself to rail me, to B-Max, like, you know, deck slug. I just sat on the side because... The keel canted and the ballast in is equivalent to having like 60, 70 people sitting on the side of the boat. Well, make it 71, why not, you know? It's, I'm not an out and out racer that's like cutting his toothbrush in half, which by the way, you don't cut your toothbrush in half to uh, lighten the load of uh, the half toothbrush that you're discarding because you know, even the water which is in the ropes and on the deck after a wave is 100 kilos. People aren't stupid enough in sailing to think that cutting the toothbrush in half actually lightens the boat. The point is that every time you brush your teeth, you think about lightness and the importance of lightness. That's why you do it, just FYI. <laughs> okay, so if you're on a boat with some captain that says you have to cut your toothbrush in half, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Well, unless he's reminding you to think about lightness, but if he's actually doing it for the weight of the toothbrush, something's wrong somewhere. But I went and sat on the side, and I'm not sure that made any difference, but uh, I, I did it, and as a concept of this is the best I can do with this boat. And slowly and surely, she, the boat, dragged in Opron Racing, dragged in Gutek. And if anybody is aware of this finish of the race, you'll be aware of, uh, of, of what happened. There was a bit of consternation at the time with a very rude gesture that uh, Gutek did to me at the finish and that it wasn't sportsmanlike behavior. But I think that came from the fact, actually I talked to him about this quite recently. When I went past him, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll catalog this for the documentary. So I passed him, he's racing his heart out and I passed him waving, filming him from a camera. So no wonder he was pissed off. So anyway, I went past him, right? But I'm only a little bit past him. And by now we are now into the last shots of this. This is all happening over a sliding time. This is not like an hour or two. This is many, 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 many hours. So now we are at the point where we are getting into, I'm ahead of him and there's like 15 miles to go. Maybe, maybe 20, 25 miles to go and we're doing 12 knots. So I'm ahead, but I'm not very far ahead. He's behind me and he's, you know, he's a much better helmsman than I am. And he's, uh, he's, he's, he's doing everything he can. And he's holding the distance now, but he's not gaining on me. But I'm literally like a mile or so ahead of him. And then that's when I made a big mistake. And it's a, a mistake I'll share with you now and I'll be honest about it. And uh, it's, a, it's a mistake of vanity. And that was this. I got contacted by the media department of the race that said, oh my God, oh my God, you know, fantastic. You're in second, like your finish is so close. You're excited, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna send out the press boat early to get pictures of you. Okay, no problem at all. So I looked at the nav. Now this is 2011. And yes, there were tablets available that you could look at your chart plotter on deck. There's no like phone or iPads. or I think I did have an iPad, but it wasn't doing anything with the chart plotter. There was no ray view to look at my Raymarine chart plotter or anything like that. <clears throat> so I looked at the chart. I went, there's the finish. There's the lighthouse. That's the angle that I need to pass it. Brilliant. This is the heading. I'll be able to see the lighthouse go on deck. So I went on deck. 
and then this press boat's alongside and they're shouting over, hey, we'll get some shots of you. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. So I go on the bow and there's some pictures of me like holding my fist in the air and, um, you know, they do this shot, do that shot. Look at the boat, they're waving at me. I'm talking to on the VHF, what have you, and the miles are rolling down. Now we're down to within like two or three miles off the finish and Gutek is still behind me. And then I hear across the VHF, Dave Adams, the race director, calling to me, Spartan, 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 race office, come in. So I go over, yep, race office, race office, race office, this is Spartan, go ahead. Spartan, you are sailing into danger. Like, what? What are they talking about? Like, huh? Like, cold shiver, the trap door opens beneath your feet. You know how those is where you suddenly get like, what is going on here? So I go down below and look at the chart plotter and I realize in my haste to go on deck and be the star and everything else, I had chosen the wrong headland. <clears throat> the lighthouse that I was looking at, that I was steering the boat by, was on a headland before and overlapping the one I needed to go to. So where I had been cutting in towards the coast to pass by in front of the lighthouse nice and uh, close, which I could do on the actual start finish, which was deep water in front of the the lighthouse, well, a lot, obviously a lighthouse there is just top of hitting rocks, but the rocks themselves were ashore and, and scattered. There's relatively deep water where we're gonna finish, which is where I've been heading for. But the lighthouse I had identified with my eye on deck was a previous headland, just the angle I was at. They literally overlapped each other and there was a couple of miles difference between the two. They're like on two sides of the bay and I'm approaching from an angle where the first one's overlapping the second one and I'm actually heading into a shoal patch, which I'm gonna go aground on in about 10 seconds or <laughs> so it seemed. So I, Jesus Christ. So I had not in any way been ready. I'm saying along at this point, the wind had freed off. Yeah, the wind had freed off. So I'm close hauled now under, oh, I don't know what I was under, <clears throat> jib top or something like that, but whatever it was, no, it was more than that. You know what, the, the wind had freed off by this point. I was upwind for that for that ride up towards Punta. Or was it a Jenica? Oh, you know what, it was a Jenica. It was a Jenica. I'm trying to think now, the pictures, time dulls the details, it was a Jenica. But I had done what I had been doing in the open ocean, which is not that uncommon, which I only had one sheet on it. And um, yeah, well, I don't do that anymore because suddenly I had to jibe this sail and I had to get it onto the other side of the boat and jibe away from danger. Now, trying to jibe an open 60 quickly is like saying you're gonna do a 2000 piece jigsaw puzzle quickly, or, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna whip myself up a quick uh, copy of the Mona Lisa here, it shouldn't take me more than a couple minutes. Like, it just can't happen. There is so much rope that has to move. The boom is out on a two to one, that's gotta come in. Now on this boat, I didn't have a hand bike, a coffee grinder. So in terms of getting things in, um, I'm a top-loaded winch and uh, they were two-speed winches. So a top-loaded two-speed winch. I'm going as fast as I can to get the main in. Then I got to pull the backstay in as fast as I can. At the same time, I'm dropping the keel down. At the same time, I'm bringing up the bit of daggerboard that was down. At the same time, I'm looking at the fact that all the sails are still on the side deck where they should be for that sail position, but they're just going to have to end up being like half underwater when I jive there because I've not got time to move them. The sail, now what can I do with sail? Can I roll it up? Well, no, I, there's no way of rolling in this sail that fast for the amount of time I've got available. So I'm just gonna have to basically jibe it 
as best as I possibly can with one sheet. Now, anybody that knows anything about sailing knows, oh, hang on, you can't do an even an outside jibe when you've only got one sheet on. So what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. <laughs> I'll tell you what you do. You jibe your main as best you possibly can. You then take the, now the sail, think of what shape the sail is when you've jibed the main and the sail is still on the one side. You then grab the sheet, it's not very light wind and we're still moving at quite a good speed. So there's not much apparent wind on deck. You grab the sheet, you disconnect it from anything, obviously there's no tails in it. You run down the deck with it as fast as you possibly can. It's starting to sail out in front of the boat. Luckily it's long. You pass it around the forester, you then run it back down the boat as fast as you possibly can. You're hauling, hauling, hauling. It's burning your hands as it's going through your hands because it's trying to pull. You just about get it directly onto a winch. It's not gone through a turning block or anything. And then you start grinding like bilio to get it back in. So you now jive the boat. So now I'm heading at 90 degrees to Gutex's course, and I still got to jive back. So <clears throat> I start grinding again. Grind, 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 grind. I'm literally dry retching and puking on my own feet with the sudden and explosive amount of um, energy I'm having to put into this. I fling the main across. The boats are rated for a standing jive in uh, 15 knots. So you can virtually not bother about the backstay, but before the Headsaw goes on before the code five goes on. It definitely has to have a backstay on. So the main goes sailing across, poing, onto the end of its um, uh, sheet. The backstay comes on. I grind that tight, bam, 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 bam. Now the rig's tight. I then do the same trick. Let fly the uh, the spinnaker sheet, but then run down the deck with it and pass it. I've passed it over the top of the deck spreaders on this boat. We haven't got to go around shrouds. It's not a classic rig. It's a tree ant rig. So I run with it and run it over back across the top of the, the deck spreader, round the front of the four states, burning my hands as it's trying to load up on the other side. I then get it back on a winch in some kind of way, again, not through a turning block. And I'm now in the position where I've got burnt hands. I got puke all over the deck and all over my shoes. And I am now behind Gutek. And the finish line is two miles away. And there is a picture from somewhere of us coming into that finish line. And I managed, even with that crappy angle on the uh, sail, not properly sheeted on anything, I still managed to pull back on him a little bit. But as we came into the finish line, after six and a half thousand miles and three weeks, I think it was 21 days racing from New Zealand, I lost to Gutek in that leg of the Velux Five Oceans race by 40 seconds, by 40 seconds. You think Thursday night race or a regatta down in the Caribbean, 40 seconds is nothing. And all because I was vain and excited, I guess. Maybe I'm, I won't pile it on myself too much, but I made the mistake of not checking my basic seamanship, basic navigation, basic situational awareness, and I incorrectly identified a lighthouse and it cost me all that so and you know what they the picture was meant to be the picture for the poster of the next leg of the race because csm caught everybody up and came second in the end they didn't even use the picture <laughs> because i didn't come second i came third so what happens next? Well, there was a good runoff period, a uh, good runoff distance behind the finish line. So <clears throat> the support boat comes alongside. And what normally happens is that your crew jump on board, uh, which for me was Aston, I think Alan Nebauer there, and uh, to help you get the mainsail down and do things and give you a hug. And you know, I haven't seen anybody for three weeks and all this stuff. And they came alongside, I think it was Alan looked up and he's like, you right, mate? Like, yeah, he's like, what do you need? Now that's the mark of a man where he doesn't say, 
this, 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 or jump in, he says, what do you need? And I said, I saw what was in the boat. I said, I need a can of Coke and I need five minutes. And they chucked me up a can of Coke and they circled away. And I can't remember if I cried. I'm almost, I'm, I can feel it welling up in me now because I can remember for the first time, I haven't told this story, I say in a long, long time, but I can remember that feeling. All that effort, 30 odd hours fixing that sail, all of the fear, the trepidation, the danger, the, the long nights, the impossible risk of running in front of that storm coming into Cape Horn, getting round the horn, all the water in the bow, the risk of going up through the Falkland Islands, slogging, 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 night after night, trimming and catching up with Derek and passing Derek and getting past Gutek and all of it came down and I screwed it right at the last moment. And if I, you know, ugh, how many places could I have caught back 40 seconds? People say that in yacht racing, like, well, you know, you know, it doesn't matter if we don't change it. We'll, we'll make the sail change a little bit later or we'll, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry. If you're going to take it really seriously and you're going to do it properly, that level that Grant Dalton and the boys on EF Language took it to, when they brought that sail in, when they brought in that method of doing things on boats, 40 seconds counts. And I can tell you, absolutely, if I could have got back one slight delay of a sail change, one I know, course change, one trim of the autopilot, one whatever. Oh God, I would have paid anything I had to have it at that moment. But, and that's the but. I had already had this experience of completely falling apart on leg one. Emotional stress, too much for me, and just basically ended up with a blanket over my head. Couldn't stand the pressure. And I had put myself back together. And I think for anybody that's been through something like that or got close to it, you have to look at how to engineer that silver lining in that particular storm cloud. You, if you've come through it and you're out the other side of it, you can survive it. It's like seasickness. People say, oh, I can't get through it. If you've been through it once, you have to create and generate inside yourself that belief, I've been through this, I can get through this again. And in that moment of all those things, oh, isn't it unfair? What have you done? Everything else. I said to the boat, you did great, you did great. And I had this phrase I kept using myself at that time where I say to myself, now Chris, you must be polite with yourself. I kept thinking about the fact that I was being too harsh on myself and I had, so I said to the boat, you did great. And Chris, I'm dealing myself in the third person to try and <laughs> counsel myself, be polite with yourself. You've done great as well. You just made a little mistake there you know, no harm, no foul, nothing's destroyed, no one's hurt. You did great as well. And I cracked open that can of Coke and in the face of losing to Gutek and everything else, I celebrated what I had accomplished. I had thrown everything I had at it. And yeah, I'd screwed up a little bit at the end, but I only screwed up a little tiny bit. I had come a long, long way in my sailing. And uh, at that point I knew, okay, now the amount that we have to correct by, the amount that we need to learn, the amount that we need to develop by is getting down to very small things. We're getting down to little trims, 10, 20 seconds here. You know, just the smallest things that needed to be added onto this. And then I could really start pushing this fleet. So the boys in the boat gave me my five minutes. And when they came back, I had a big smile on my face and most of the can of Coke was gone. And I welcomed them on board and they gave me a big hug and said, what a fantastic job I'd done. And they helped me get the sail down. 
and we sailed into Punta. And Derek, who was literally like one hour behind us, by the time we'd actually gone in and tied up, he um, uh, had, had joined us by the time we got all these boats stern two moored. And actually it was myself and Gutek and Derek and Brad on the dock. And we had the most fantastic time uh, celebrating with the friends and family and the people that come down to join us. This, uh, the safety of the transit through the Southern Ocean had been maintained. Everybody was in high spirits. We'd had this fantastic finish. And, uh, and I was very, very proud of what I'd accomplished and, uh, and knew that um, whilst I had a long way to go and still have a long way to go in my sailing career, there was a spark there that I could, if I needed to, send it when asked. <laughs> it's funny telling these stories, you know, after this amount of time. It's, uh, it's exciting to get into that moment. I actually, I just finished editing the last podcast I did. It's, uh, it's Monday now, and I just released that podcast. And it was an absolutely awful experience editing it. Like, I'd made some mistakes on how I'd set things up on the phone, and it sounded awful. I had to adjust loads of things in my uh, uh, sound uh, editing program, Audacity, there, and I don't really know how to use it. And it was... And you know what, I came right off the back of doing that and this slog marathon of editing to get this very simple thing produced. And I thought, right, what do you do now? Well, you're gonna tell the story of Punta, so act like it's Punta. Get back on the horse ASAP. So I've come straight back up here after that nightmare of editing to come and tell you this story. And I'm very glad that I have. So as we get into the last couple of minutes here, I just wanna to touch on something. The boat that I brought across from um, the UK and France in the Mariner series. There on YouTube, you want to go and look. At that point when I first got it, it was called Hellcat. We actually got away from that name. We were looking at some sponsorship with Dodge, American car manufacturer. Um, it didn't work out. And uh, I, I don't know, it just didn't feel like a very positive name for me, but I, I could be convinced to go back to it, I don't know. But I've been watching, I think I've been watching Talladega Nights a few too many times, the NASCAR racing film. And uh, I wanted to have a name for the boat that meant something to me. So Robert Falcon Scott, was a great hero of mine, an incredible um, example of tenacity in pursuit. And, uh, and also I'm a big Star Wars fan and the Millennium Falcon is also a, uh, <laughs> a study in tenacity in pursuit. So the boat's called Falcon, but I brought her back across in uh, 2019. She's been in the boatyard. She was meant to be launched already this now. It's two, early 2020, but um, it can't happen because of uh, COVID-19 and we are not going to the events we're gonna go to. But something I, I got her for, which is I think the first time she's gonna go on the water is I want to take that boat. I wanna do this solo nonstop west around the world record attempt. And I'm very happy to talk about this in the next podcast. Maybe I'll do the next podcast about that if that's of interest. I'd like to talk about that. It's a very exciting um, story. There's all sorts of you know race stories, but when you're talking about sailing west around the world, you're talking about going against the prevailing currents, against the prevailing winds. And it's a journey of 27,000 miles in the, the shortest line that you can do. It is referred to as the global challenge but it's more colloquially referred to as the impossible voyage. Only five people have ever completed that voyage. And the record at the moment stands at just over 122 days. It is a record which can be beaten. And I wanna take the boat and I wanna go and do it. And I would love to share with you what that project is and share with you my concept for it and why I've picked the boat I've picked. It came to me 
serendipitously, and I'm very happy to, to share with uh, exactly what's been going on that boat and how I got it and everything else. It's an incredible story. But um, when it came to me, it came to me perfectly suited to this idea I've been holding on to for a very long time of doing this West Around the World uh, record attempt. And uh, I want to go and do that in November of this year. So if you're interested in hearing about code zeros, give me a shout. If you're interested in hearing about IRC ratings, give me a shout. And if you want to hear more about the West Around the World, well, don't worry, because that's what I'm going to talk about on the next one. <laughs> you can't stop me, if you, apart from not listening. So. There we go. I hope that you enjoyed that uh, story of uh, sailing from Cape Horn up to Punta del Este, the closest finish in solo racing history, and a great opportunity to push myself to the very limits of what I could do and, and, and reconfirm myself in the, in the in, uh, stamp it in adamantium that however bad things get, as long as you still got yourself, you can continue, but falling apart may be required <laughs> to get through, okay? Sometimes the light at the other end of the tunnel is a train, it's gonna have to run you over, and then you're gonna have to get up and get on with things, and that's just the way it is, okay? Well, as I said at the end of the last one, when I use the phrase safe and sound, I really mean it. That's what I put in my logbook at the end of every voyage. I wanna be able to write vessel sound, crew safe. And so I say to you again, I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>